Hey friends, uh, it is good to be here with you this last week of the church year. Yes, that is correct. We are in the last week of the church year this week, uh, Thanksgiving week, and this Sunday coming up will be the first Sunday of Advent. And as promised, we're going to be looking continually at the uh, various lectionary texts uh, that are upcoming for, or that are coming up for the week. Uh, and we're going to be focusing this week on the Old Testament lectionary text found in Isaiah chapter 64, verses 1 through 9. Now, uh, if you remember the last time I noted for you that, uh, in fact, uh, we're not just going to be doing devotions like we have done them before, but we're actually going to be focusing on where we find the law and the gospel in the various texts that we come across, because I'm a firm believer that we can find it in all of God's word. If you remember last time from our sort of extended discussion, we talked about the fact that God's uh, overall word, the Bible, is basically broken up into two words, that of law, which is associated with conditional statements, doing something or not doing something and facing the penalty for that, and also gospel, which is something that declares to us that, uh, which is something that declares that which has been done on our behalf, that which God has done for us. Uh, and specifically, we see that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Well, we're going to see that again today in Isaiah 64. So uh, with that being said, I won't take any more time. Welcome to our Long Gospel devotional. So uh, Isaiah 64, verses 1 through 9. This is a painting of Isaiah looking out over the people of Israel, being sort of called into the ministry of uh, foretelling, or all right, not just foretelling, but speaking God's word to the people. And this passage you're going to see is really, at least at the outset, all about a call for judgment against the people's enemies. Indeed, Isaiah, as he will do this, is very much representative of the people of Israel at the time, and the people of Judah, for that matter, because they faced many enemies. And yet what you're going to see is there's also some pause. There's also a, uh, but wait just a second, maybe we shouldn't be too ready to call down judgment just yet. So with that, let's dig into a little bit of the context of this passage, and for that matter, of this book. Uh, first of all, most scholars sort of break up the book of Isaiah into three overall themes, three overall patterns you can see. There's various ways you can break up the book, especially chapters 1 through 39 and then chapters 40 through the end of the book, as the focus really is quite different. As a matter of fact, some scholars have suggested that it's so different that it seems like there's two Isaiahs that have written the book. We're not going to get into that discussion. We're going to talk about the themes that we find. And what we find in chapters 1 through 39 is basically prophecies about the imminent invasion of the Assyrian Empire and the Northern Kingdom's exile. Now that, that will happen in, in the 8th century BC, and that is the time that Isaiah is actually living. And yet it's not just that that he prophesies about, because basically from chapter 40 to 55, he also addresses the Southern Kingdom, or Judah. And he talks about their coming exile as well at the hands of Babylon. Now, we know both of these empires are incredibly brutal, and they're known for being brutal, especially the Assyrians, but the Babylonians are not far behind. And so large chunks of Isaiah's book are 
uh, written to deal with those issues that these people are facing or will face. But then in the last uh, 10 or so chapters in 56 to 66, you have prophecies that really apply to all times and places more often. They're more universal in scope, uh, and they focus on the heavenly kingdom to come quite a bit, oftentimes referred to as Zion, the great heavenly city. So uh, with that, by way of context, here's what the passage says in the first five or so verses. Isaiah writes, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood, and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. Here Isaiah, of course, is alluding to what the nation of Israel did indeed um, experience at Mount Sinai and at other points in their history where God has worked in mighty ways on behalf of his people. And he's asking that God would do that again as the adversaries come near to God's people. He continues, verse 4, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember uh, you in your ways. Well, that is clearly a cry for justice, a cry that God would come in wrath and fury to let Israel's enemies know that they can't get away with this forever, darn it. No, sir, they cannot. And it's understandable. It's very understandable. I mean, whenever we face great evil in our lives, as surely Israel did, uh, the most natural response is to cry out for God to fix the problem. I mean, when we are attacked, we want God to eventually lash out and, and take care of our enemies, as good old Dalson does to Blanca here in one of my favorite games as a teenager, Street Fighter II. We don't want this fight to go on forever. We want to know that God can take care of this and that he's going to take care of this one day. The desire for such justice is not necessarily a bad one. It's something instinctive to us as human beings. It's a good thing that we want justice. And yet, we have to ask the question, who deserves God coming to their rescue? Well, Isaiah gives us the answer. In verse 5, the very beginning of verse 5, he says, very clearly, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. God works on behalf of those who joyfully work righteousness. Or in other words, he works on behalf of people that are perfect, people that actually are righteous. Well, of course, if you're honest with yourself at all, you know that that leads to a problem. And it's as if Isaiah recognizes the same thing right as the words are written down on the page, right as the words come out of his mouth. It's as if he says, oh, but wait, let's continue. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Uh-oh, behold, you were angry and we 
sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Quite literally, like used menstrual rags. That's how you could translate it from the Hebrew. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you. For you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of your iniquities or our iniquities. In scripture, one of the worst fates that can happen to God's people is that God would hide himself from them, that he would hide his face from them. His face shining upon them, as we often hear in the ironic benediction from number six, we wish and we ask that God would let his face shine upon the people, is a great blessing. But when it is hidden, nothing but doom awaits. And here Isaiah acknowledges, in fact, that they're, well, they're not worthy. It's as if in the midst of crying out for justice against the people's adversaries, Isaiah recognizes they've been their own worst enemy. And that is what the law is meant to do, folks. Always. That's, it always has this accusing function to us. And so even as we sort of indignantly cry out for justice and mercy, the more we do so, the more we ought to recognize, as Isaiah does here, that we deserve that same justice and wrath as well. It forces us to recognize that we have not been righteous as we should. It forces us to recognize we are worthy of judgment. We're not worthy. Wayne and Garth were right. We're not worthy. And that's what the law forces us to say. It forces us to acknowledge that, as Isaiah does right in the middle of calling out for justice against his enemies. And so now what takes place is a whole new tone. Listen to verses eight and nine. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are all your people. Instead of hiding, please look. Let your face shine upon us, even though we have sinned and fallen short. It's as if Isaiah is crying out the same way that the tax collector did in the famous parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, be merciful to me, the sinner, and yet he's doing it on behalf of the entire people of God. Be merciful to us because we recognize we too have fallen short in dramatic ways. As Isaiah contemplates not merely the sin committed against him and his people, but also the sin committed by him and his people, the tone can't help but change. And suddenly, we do not hear of the mighty God who will rend the heavens and come down in fiery judgment, as we heard in the first few verses, 
But now we hear of a father who intimately fashions us as a potter fashions clay. Suddenly, an appeal is made based on God's promise that in spite of our flaws and failures, we are all the people of his hand. We are the sheep of his pasture. And so we cry out and ask that our, iniqu our iniquities would not be held against us. And so the question as we close up this devotion then is how is it we can be certain that God will answer this plea for mercy, that our iniquities will not be held against us? And the answer from the rest of Scripture is, of course, found in Jesus Christ our Lord. It is why we always point to him, because Jesus on the cross takes the judgment that all deserve for their rebellion and sin. Jesus takes the judgment that I deserve for my rebellion and sin. Jesus atones for my rebellion and sin, and therefore I can have absolute assurance, and so can you, that when we cry out for mercy, recognizing that we too are worthy of judgment, that we will not face it because he already has in our place. So yes, it's understandable to cry out for God to bring justice, and it's not wrong to do so. But even as we do so, may we always recognize that apart from the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ, we too would be worthy of such judgment. And let us be tempered by that reality so that we would grow hearts of empathy and compassion for those who we deem our adversaries, for those whom we deem difficult. May God's spirit work in us, not merely to look on the world as something worthy of judgment, because we recognize we are, but may God cause us to recognize the world as people that God has made to be recipients of mercy found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right, gang, that is our long gospel devotional for this week. I hope you have been blessed by the hearing of it, and I pray that you have a wonderful uh, rest of your day and rest of your week. We'll see you next Tuesday. God bless.